You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. How do you begin talking about race? I mean, this is un- uncomfortable. I said to JJ just a minute ago, the only thing more awkward than George talking about sex is George talking about race. But here we go. Uh, you might think we should bar the doors uh, so nobody can get out. Because in America, we really don't want to talk about this subject. The truth is, though, when the Apostle Paul takes it up, he takes it up in such a positive, winsome way. I mean, I love this. The tone of the letter of Ephesians just kind of carries on this joyful tone of celebration. And uh, he's talking about the resurrected Jesus who makes all the difference in this conversation. He knows that uh, history began with uh, a diverse people in unity. And history will end with a diverse people in unity. By the way, you know the Mishnah, one of the, the, the earliest commentary on the Bible, the Jewish commentary, in the Mishnah, uh, one of the writers asked, why did God create only one human being? And the answer is, so that no one can say to a fellow human being, my father is better than yours. Think about that. That's where we began. And that's where we're ending as well. Jesus, the dawn of the new age, invites us to walk with him through the struggle and into the beauty of racial reconciliation. And the Apostle Paul knows that they needed help with this in Asia Minor. Uh, Asian Minor was remarkably diverse. You might not think that. Um, Ephesus, for example, is on a trade route that north, south, east, west. It's got a port city, so people are coming from far and wide. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at that time, uh, up to a quarter million people. And these cities were dense. Actually, the density of, of, of these cities exceeded the density of lower Manhattan today. It was more than 115 people per uh, square mile. And and, and remember that Manhattan is vertical. So you had uh, all different ethnicities from around the world migrating to a city like Ephesus to engage in its trade and intellectual inquiry. And um, they would oftentimes be living, scholars tell us, in these ethnic precincts. They would tend to congregate like we all do with people of our own kind. One city like this had 18 different ethnic precincts. Um, So there was a sense of tolerance in the Greco-Roman world, but there was also a a lot of crime, a lot of discrimination, a lot of race rioting in these cities because of this diversity and density together. So Paul's addressing it. You might not have noticed in chapter 2 that Paul's addressing it because he doesn't use our language, but he uses the word Gentiles. And the word Gentile is not an ethnicity. The word Gentile is the Greek word for nations. It means all the nations. It's literally the Greek word ethnoi, from which we get our word ethnic. So when he's talking about Jew and Gentile relationships, he's talking about the relationships of one nation to all other nations and all other nations to one another. He's talking about racial reconciliation. But here's my question. How does Jesus change the conversation? Right? How does Jesus change it? So let's pull our Bibles back out, open up to page 950. That's uh, where you'll find Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. I want to engage you in reading that last third of the paragraph uh, of the passage uh, that was read for us earlier aloud together. So if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. By the way, 
as you read this, notice the metaphor that Paul's using, because it's a house metaphor. I think this is suggestive. I think it's suggesting to us that reconciliation is a construction project. So let's listen. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. It's the word of the Lord. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Really want to walk through this whole passage with you, so please leave the Bible open. And notice in these three sections, we'll be talking about outsider language. Secondly, gospel demolition. And thirdly, new construction. Let's begin where Paul does with outsider language. Uh, verses 11 through 12. This is the first movement of this text. And I want to encourage you to visualize a house, because that's what Paul's doing. Think about, just get an image of a house in your head. And um, here we begin outside of the house, outsider language. Outside the house, what's the word on the street as people of different ethnicities speak about one another? Here you're going to see, we're going to meet a prophet. Now, as I say, there are lots of house words in the paragraph we just read six times. The word house comes up. One of them is in verse 19. Look at that. It's translated alien, uh, but alien literally means someone who's just beyond the house. It's a compound word, beyond the house, outside the house. So Paul's talking about an alien is an outsider. Uh, and there are other words that he'll use in uh, verses 11 through 12 that talk about foreigners, uh, strangers, aliens. It's the same thing, but it's someone who's outside the house. And so but what interests me when Paul started to talk about this in that first movement is the quotation marks. Did you notice that? Uh, I think it's verse 11, uncircumcision and circumcision. He puts them in quotation marks. Of course, there weren't actually quotation marks in his writing, but he uses so-called. He's saying so-called, the so-called uncircumcision and the so-called circumcision. This is interesting. Follow me here because it's a little complicated. He's not just talking about what you once were. He's talking about what we once called one another. See, we had labels for one another. See, we, 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 we had pejorative terms for one another. We had stories that we imputed to one another. We imagined who you were, and then we projected that identity onto you. This is a socially constructed ethnic description of somebody. It's a narrative that we create for people that are not like us. See, so we Jews, uh, we used to call you the uncircumcision. That was a slam. It was a pejorative term. Because, you know, God picked us, and he didn't pick you. And it, it became uh, a way of elevating themselves over other people, and denigrating those who are not Jews or circumcised. On the other hand, the uh, non-Jews, they couldn't quite figure out why the Jewish people would circumcise themselves. You know, I have no idea whether that was a mystery to anybody, but the pagans didn't get it, and they thought this was very barbaric. So they tended to, to think of the Jews as the, just the circumcised. You know, they're the circumcised. So I don't think we have circumcision riots anymore in L.A., but um, this was a point of tension in the ancient world, and Paul is starting to back away from it by these air quotes. 
He's saying, I'm not going to call you the uncircumcision anymore. You could see him start to deconstruct this as he backs it. Look, notice the dashes there. He goes, wait a minute. He kind of catches himself with this. He goes, it's actually just a physical circumcision. It's actually just made in the flesh. It's actually just made with human hands. This isn't a God thing. It's not an objectively real thing. This is just kind of the way we talk about, we label one another. So the point that I'm trying to make, I think Paul's making, is that what we say about outsiders is rarely true and almost never helpful. I mean, I, sometimes it's, it's harmless to, to think in terms of these labels or stereotypes. So you've heard people say that, uh, the, that heaven is where the police are British and the chefs are Italian, the mechanics are German, the lovers are French, and it's all organized by the Swiss. On the other hand, hell is where the police are German, the chefs are British, the mechanics are French, the lovers are Swiss, and it's all organized by the Italians, right? <laughs> so these are the kind of labels we tend to use of one another, and I don't know how much truth there is, but truth, you know, it's, it, we joke about it, it's oftentimes not helpful. Because when we look at people that are not like us and start to imagine or project who they are and the stereotypical narrative we invent for them, oftentimes it just perpetuates the reality of our division, the hostilities that are between us. You know, we say, oh, these are the people that are lazy. We say, these are the people that are smart. We say, these are the people that stole our land. We say, these are the people uh, that will take our jobs. You see, and, and then we reduce somebody just to these labels. And Paul is starting to deconstruct his own way of thinking about outsiders. It's a beautiful thing. What he's doing here is he's standing firmly in the prophetic tradition, the Israelite prophetic tradition. I always had built into it this self-critical mechanism. It's like a David Foster Wallace meta-narrative that's saying something and they're going, wait a minute, do I really mean that? That's what the prophets are doing. They're, ch they're going outside and they're challenging the, tr the, the, the accepted truths of the the day, calling people back to God's revelation in his word. Prophets did that. And the prophets had a lot to say, by the way, about race. Um, how are you treating the aliens, they would always ask. How's the foreigner doing in your midst, they would ask. Of course, their whole books, the, the book of Esther, uh, is a book about uh, anti-Semitism, isn't it? It's horrible. The book of Jonah, on the other hand, is a book about Israelite nationality and nationalism gone awry. Right? Remember, Jonah goes, I don't want to talk to these pagans. I'm the one who worships the God who made heaven and earth. Let them all go to hell. And so that's the problem with Jonah. So the, the prophets have built into their tradition this sense of, of deconstructing our ways of thinking about the outsider. So there's a shift here uh, in outsider language. Paul says, I'm going to put that in quotation marks because I'm in process. I'm in the process of repentance here, starting to think differently about people. Now, for me, as I was thinking about this text this week, I found myself saying at one point, you know, I don't really have uh, much of a struggle with people of different ethnicities. And then, bing, there's a little voice in the back of my head going, George, do you think that could have anything to do with the fact that you're a white male living in America, right? That's that self-critical instinct saying, wait a minute, maybe uh, somebody else's ethnic experience is very different than my ethnic experience in this place. And I need to challenge my thinking uh, around that. So I think better way of talking about one another is rather than um, ourselves projecting, uh, we let other people fill the, uh, uh, the uh, quotation marks. Instead of um, 
Describing other people, how about being curious and letting them describe themselves? I think this is where this would lead us, to just say, tell me about yourself. Uh, Assuming we know nothing about the stranger and inviting them to share their own sense of identity with us. Who, who, tell me who you see yourself as. What's your favorite color? What does friendship mean to you? What's your family like? What's your history and experience? Those are not easy questions to ask sometimes, but very, very important. So we meet a prophet outside the house who helps us shift the way we talk about outsiders. And then Paul goes on and he engages in what I would call gospel demolition, verses 13 through 18. So let's come in towards the house. We come along from the street and we've been listening to how people have been talking about one another on the street. Now we come up the path and we see as we approach this house at the door, there is somebody standing to welcome. Paul says... In verse 18, through him, both of us, meaning Jew and non-Jew, have access. So he's putting someone at the door. Who is this? It's a priest at the door. This is a picture of a host who is pronouncing uh, peace. He's saying, come on in, peace on you. Uh, Just like in Luke 10, we see people pronouncing a word of peace at a doorway. Here, this uh, person at the door is just hospitable. He's welcoming travelers from near and far. Would you come inside this house, speak a word of peace on you, and welcome you in? This host is really a priest. This is priestly language that's being used. Access is priestly language. Reconciliation is the project of priests, right? Reconciliation with God, reconciliation with one another. This is what priests do in ancient Israel. But notice this, it always involves grace. Grace, something we don't deserve. And it always involves sacrifice. In the Old Testament times, of course, it was an animal. But by the time we get to Christ and the mystery of the gospel is that God himself in his son offers his life. And so Paul says it's by the blood of Christ that you've been reconciled, just by him. And this is amazing. This is really shifting. Um, And by the way, notice also that he says he proclaims peace. So it's Christ at the door, this great high priest who's proclaiming peace. It literally means gospeling. If you turn the word gospel, which means good news, into a verb, you get the verb that Paul uses there when it's, where our translation says he's proclaiming peace. Jesus is gospeling those who are far and those who are near. And as he does that, he's welcoming people into relationship with one another and taking down the barrier, which is the hostility that divides us. It's the gospel that demolishes that barrier. Because truthfully, behind every social barrier, there's a spiritual barrier. This is the teaching of the Bible. Do you remember... Uh, Sunday school, and if you went to Sunday school, and the Tower of Babel, and it's Genesis 11. What happens there? Uh, as the human race is traveling east of Eden, they're aware of their insecurity. They've been dislocated from relationship with God in Eden, and now they start to build. There's a building project, construction, the brick on brick, and they build the Tower of Babel. They're trying to get, the text tells us, to, to heaven out of pride. It's a grab for power. And God says, no. And what it, it, he confuses the languages. Now, the, what the, the narrator, the ancient narrator is telling you is that our, the divisions uh, between our cultures, our languages, our ethnicities have at their root a response to insecurity and a, a, a grab for power. They're rooted in pride. And it's no accident that we go from the fall, Genesis 3, to Genesis 11, Tower of Babel, that, the, the, that this calling of Abraham is the very next scene. 
in Genesis. Because Abraham and the whole nation of Israel that comes from Abraham is God's rescue operation to fix this problem. Genesis 12, here's the nations. This is where circumcision is going to come from. One family that's called to bless all the families of the earth. Then fast forward real fast, you get to Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes now, and everybody's speaking in different languages, but they can all understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Why? Because now there's been reconciliation. The great high priest Jesus has given his life, died and risen, and, and now it's possible to be ethnically diverse but unified by the grace of Jesus Christ. We all have access, Paul says. So let me give you two implications of this. First of all, um, in our noblest moments, we might say, hey, I want to welcome other people into our, our church, people that are different. And I want to stop you here because I think the text doesn't allow you to do that. You're not the one at the door granting access. Jesus is the one at the door granting access. This is not my church to invite you into. This is his church, to, and he invites both of us into it. This is really important, uh, especially for those of us who have been around the church for a while and may lean a little white. It's not our church. It's his church. And we're his guests, all of us. So that's the first implication. The second is uh, that with the gospel, we can all be priests of reconciliation. There's a little story about three Christians who are on their way to heaven. They're having this argument about what language will be spoken in heaven. And uh, the Israeli says, well, it'll be Hebrew. That's the language of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The African says, no, it's going to be Latin. That's the language of Augustine from Africa and the church scholars. And uh, the American says, no, it'll, it's going to be English. Just look at the King James Bible. If English was good enough for Jesus, it'll be good enough for heaven. <laughs> and so, you know, when they all arrive there at the pearly gates, there's Peter, and he opens wide his arms. He says, buenos dias, hermanos. You know? <laughs> so the, lang the language of heaven is the gospel. That's the, that, in this passage, that's what... The, Jesus is speaking peace. He's saying he's gospeling. It's the language of heaven. It's, it's gospel. It's gospel. And what the gospel will do is it will pull down racial barriers. It demolishes. It's a deconstruction project. And you and I are called into that priestly ministry. Why is Jesus essential to that? Well, because at the cross, at the cross, no one can be proud and no one can be weak. The cross is the one thing that humbles the proud and that elevates and ennobles uh, the weak. See, and this is essential for those who are going to dare to have the hard conversations around race. We'll need to be humbled in a safe environment, and we'll need to be able to elevate in a safe environment. And that's what the, what the cross allows. Jürgen Moltmann says on the, on, the, on the cross, the God we meet on the cross is a God who brings atonement and solidarity. There's atonement for those of us who have got, violated God's law and participated complicitly or intentionally uh, in racism, there's atonement. Those who have been the enemies of God find God dying for them. There's also solidarity with the victims. Those whose rights have been deprived find that God is standing in solidarity as a victim himself on the cross, guaranteeing that, that he himself will restore to them all the, all the rights that, they've, that have been taken from them. So you see, the cross and the gospel is really at the heart of reconciliation. Think about a gracious host. 
you ever been to a party when you've been nervous about going? I don't know if I'm going to know anybody. What am I going to say? You know, I'm that way at every party because I'm an introvert. But a really good coast, if you invite me over to your house, meets me at the door and just says, peace, just be relaxed. This is going to be great. And I feel at home in your house and I feel at home with all the other people that I, that I met. And that's what the, this priest is doing, get granting access to all of us. Saying, so just chill out. It's going to be okay. You're going to love the people that I invited here. I'm going to help you get along with them. So... Uh, talked about outsider language, gospel de- demolition. Let's move finally to the third movement here Paul takes up, and that's in verses 19 through 20, the section you read. Uh, here we meet a king. Here now we're inside the house with a view of the place in which Jesus himself, the ruler of heaven and earth, lives, makes his home. Now, of course, it's a human house. He's using figurative language here, talking about stones. The foundation of the house is, is the gospel, because that's what the apostles and the prophets um, first preached. And Jesus is the cornerstone, so the house will follow the dimensions that Jesus sets as the first stone there. And remember, the nations, the ethnoi, are the stones. You never want to read the last part of chapter 2 without reading the middle part that talks about Gentiles and nations. All these stones are multicolored, multicolored stones from every nation. That's, that's, that's who's in this house. Now, this is interesting. For those of you who are history buffs, Alexis de Tocqueville, you know, came to America at our infancy to see what our democracy was like. And in 1835, he wrote that he was very impressed, but he was very concerned about our capacity to overcome slavery as a nation. He said, it's just, it's just not like democracies to be able to fix a problem like that. Here's what he actually uh, wrote, among other things. He says, an isolated individual may surmount the prejudices of religion, of his country, or of his race. And if this individual is a king, he may effect surprising changes in society. But a whole people cannot rise, as it were, above it itself. He's saying you know, one, one individual person might rise above their own prejudices, but corporately the structures of racism uh, are so intractable that to get a whole democracy to overcome them is highly unlikely without a king. And so I think it's interesting that here we have a king, Jesus, the Lord. The text says Jesus, the Lord, is in this house. Remember, the, the Romans were taught to say Caesar is king, and the early followers of Jesus said Jesus is king. And here he is in this house. A, a book was published, Oxford University Press, a few years ago. Uh, Emerson and Smith called Divided by Faith. And they did a massive survey of mostly evangelical Christians and our impact on racial segregation in America. And they found not only we didn't help very much, but oftentimes we make it worse. Let me explain that. What they found is that even though evangelicals talk a lot about race, have a lot of organizations to help with race, give a lot of money to race, all those things are true, we tend to have a theology that's very individualistic. And we tend to believe that if prejudice can be removed from the human heart, the race problem would be solved. But the fact is, you can be a person who doesn't personally experience yourself as prejudiced, but nevertheless benefit from the fruits of a racially divided society and therefore reinforce it. So Paul is calling a people into action corporately, not individually. And this is hard for us as evangelicals. So we really have to listen to the text very hard here. I want you to see three things in this text. I mean, mean, the point is that it's what we do together that makes the rule of Jesus visible. It's not enough just to see yourself as unprejudiced. 
Three things that we see here. First of all, it's an interdependent house. This is a flesh and blood community that has learned to live in in interdependence with one another, which means I can't be me without you being you. Try taking a stone and putting it right about here where it's supposed to be without any other stones around it. How's that going to work? Without interdependency, this is just a bunch of stones on the ground or a rubble, right? No, it's only as we find our place in relationship to one another that we... And Paul's using this language that, you know, we don't even get it as Americans. It's so corporate. He's saying Jesus uh, made one new humanity in the text. It's one new anthropos. It's singular. The Hebrew mind could understand this in ways that we don't. We are unified in our redemption in Jesus. And it's only as we start to live out of that unification that, that Jesus' gift becomes visible to the world. Secondly, it's a worship house. This is the house of the Lord. It's a place of worship. We're bowing down before him. We get a clearer picture of this in Revelation chapter 5, where John, also in this area in Asia Minor, has a vision of every tribe and language and people and nation gathered around the throne of Jesus. And Leslie Newbegin says, it's not until we get to that moment, brothers and sisters, that we will see Jesus clearly. We'll see him then only for the first time. Because when you and I look through the eyes of faith at Jesus now, we tend to wear cultural lenses that allow us only to see our kind of Jesus. We tend to see a white Jesus or a Latino Jesus or an African Jesus, whoever we are. And so we're really seeing a Jesus that's like black and white, two dimensions, low resolution. But when you and I can step out and see Jesus through the lenses of somebody who's not like us, another ethnicity, then we see him without the blinding effect of our own cultural lenses. So Newbigin says, when the mission of movement of Jesus is complete and we are all gathered around Jesus, we'll see him then for the first time live in color, three dimensions, high resolution as he really is. And a community that worships Jesus Christ in that way today gets a better view of him. The third thing to see here is it's a political house. It really is. This is a new commonwealth. He uses the language of citizenship. This is a kingdom house. And what we learn in this house as we worship Jesus, if we take it seriously, starts to have visible implication in the society around us. It has to. When I start to realize the point of life for me is not to get myself through life or to get my individual little family through life, but to get your family through life, to get our family through life, then it starts to change the sociological structures of our church family, and it becomes visible to the world as well. Anyways, this is what Paul is saying. Jesus has broken down the dividing wall, the hostility between us, not the differences between us, but the hostility between us has been broken down. That's who he is. He's this great prophet who meets us outside the house, helps us get past our negative narratives of one another. He's a great priest who stands at the door and invites us in through his grace. He's a great king. We meet him inside as we bow before him and worship. He makes himself known to us in the unity of our ethnic diversity. Let me close with a story. I saw this on the news last week. Maybe some of you saw it. It was about Utica, New York. Utica, New York. Uh, I'm from upstate New York. Utica, New York is a rust, bound, a rust belt town that over the decades has shuttered its factories and lost a third of its population. It's in deep decline. It was. Actually, now it's experiencing a resurgence. There's a little bit of a boom going on. Why? Apparently, as a matter of economic development, they decided to open their doors to refugees from around the world. They now call Utica... Uh, the town that loves refugees. In the great spirit of Lady Liberty and the Empire State, who calls 
the world to give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. People of Utica have said, why don't you come? And they have come. They've come from everywhere you can imagine around the world. Now, one out of every four New Yorkers in Utica is an immigrant. One out of four. Changing the complexion of that city in wonderful ways. They tell stories of some. Ta is an ethnic Karen fleeing persecution in Burma. She's lived in a refugee camp for 23 years. She lost her sister to suicide. Yosef is a Palestinian fleeing Baghdad. He was kidnapped, had to watch his brother be beaten. Ibrahim, he fled from Bosnia and Europe, lost both of his legs to a landmine. He's an engineer working two jobs at the community college there and somewhere else. And he says, the community helped me. Now I want to help back. At the end of this little segment, they show people from like 15 different nations being sworn in. They say the Pledge of Allegiance. They each get a little flag. And then the judge has some closing words. She says, America is now your country. I cannot overemphasize the need now more than ever for you and your fellow citizens to unite, answer the call, and assist in bettering our society and our world. And she says, congratulations on becoming a citizen of the greatest nation on earth. God bless all of you, and God bless America. Now, um, at that, my wife turned to me and looked at me across the dinner table, and I just burst into tears. Because of all the news that I had to watch, uh, all the other segments, I was just getting depressed. But I saw the beauty, the beauty of this deeply touched me. And it will deeply touch the people around us as well as we learn to live together. This is what Jesus does. He is our peace. He turns outsiders into insiders. Let's pray. What good news this is, that brothers and sisters can live together in unity. Thank you for doing this work of reconciliation. Jesus, forgive us for those times when we have neglected it, but now re-engage us with the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might bring glory to your name and draw all men to you as we lift you up in our unity. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.